You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca. Uh, you are about to embark on a journey for uh, the second podcast in, I don't think we've kind of named this series. But I think we call it the Legacy Series. And I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com and I was about to do the Twilight Zone a theme, but I decided, yeah, we're about to enter a journey with, uh, whatever. Anyways, yeah. um, we were fortunate enough to recently sit down with uh, the man who created Trius Red. Well, you sat down with him. I was, you know, again, like I was with uh, Donald Zeraldo. I was in the same room with him. You were in the same room with uh, the bearded one, JL Groot. And it was awesome to get a chance to taste some of the Stratus wine. So JL has reached a couple of very significant uh, business milestones in the fact that Trius Red is now in its 25th anniversary. Yeah, he started that. Um, and it, I mean, there's a lot of people who still say that you can't make red wine in Ontario. So every time you open a bottle of Trius Red, you can picture JL flipping the middle finger to those people. Although he's such a nice man, I doubt he would actually do it. And the reason you like him so much is because he named a wine the way you want it to be named. Yep, I do. Well, I, I actually think that people should follow suit. He does not use the word meritage, he uses the word red. And that followed him to Stratus as well. So Stratus has reached the 10 years. That's the other milestone that he's reached. So let's face it, JL's a big deal. Ladies and gentlemen, we present JL Grew. Well, here we are again. I'm Michael Pincus, the grape guy from MichaelPincusWineReview.com and on location in Toronto, uh, which is surprising because we're talking to a Niagara winemaker today. I have Andre. <laughs> Andre, you want to say hello? Hey. Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca, and uh, we have a special guest with us this week. I'm broadcasting live to tape from Archive Wine Bar at 909 Dundas Street in Toronto. An amazing wine bar, if I may say so. We have J.L. Grew with us, who is uh, a pioneer, let's say, uh, for Niagara wines and for wines in general in this area. Yes. And uh, I guess... Uh, since we have JL, do you want to just say hello so that people know we're not faking this? Yeah, certainly. Hello, everyone. How are you? Okay, good. So, JL, I'm uh, I'm going to kick it off with a very serious question here. And Actually, it's, before we kick it off, we should even mention a little bit of who JL is and why he's a pioneer. I mean, JL is the current winemaker at Stratus, and as far as I know, you're the only winemaker that Stratus has had in their right. 10-year history. And 12, yeah. uh, we are in the 25th year of Trius Red being made, and you're also the man who created Trius Red. Right. Which, which happens to be Andre's favorite uh, wine name, by the way, JL. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> no, he just told me he enjoyed his first bottle in 2007. Unfortunately, yes. when it was gone already, but uh, for what I taste, they really kept the tradition well. Well, I mean, it's just one of the things that, that, that irks me about the Ontario wine industry is the use of the word meritage. Yeah. And I really feel like you hit the nail on the head by going simple and just calling it red yeah. and leaving it up to the companies to do that. And the fact that the term red has followed you from Trius to Stratus, I still hope it catches on elsewhere. Yeah. And, you know, it's very anti-marketing doing these things. You know, everybody is thinking valuable wines and what we are just supposed to do. And starting Trius back in 89 was really a daring thing that it grew into where it is now completely counterintuitively show that assemblage wine is worth talking about because over time they really show uh, their value you know, and people start to buying these wines over and over despite the fact there is no variety on them necessarily. Mm. 
But when I was making trios, I was always feeling like I'm in the carton. You know, I really wanted to add more varieties out of these three Bordeaux varieties I was uh, supposed to use. Mm-hmm. And when I start, when we started Strudels, we said, okay, we're going to plant and use whatever we have in our own vineyard. But we have 12 red varieties, and we, all of them have their different personalities, and we try to make these uh, fit into the assemblage. Not all of them fit. Some do fit more of them. Sure, it's more, still a Bordeaux-driven type of uh, variety, but sometimes you might have some Syrah, or as we pointed out, Tanat, or other things in there that are not supposed to be but we are open-minded on what makes the best wine we will, we will put in. You still there, Michael? I, of course I'm still here. I was enthralled by what was being said. I know, it's just, it's, it's really interesting, though, that using the term red means that you're not bound by specific varietals. That's correct. Well, Meritage uh, obviously means the five Bordeaux varietals, and, and JL was saying that, you know, especially at Stratus, He's got 12 there. He doesn't have just have five, so he gets to play with, like a like a, a chef in the kitchen with all kinds of ingredients. He gets to make his wine. And uh, the the he's referring to is in the um, the 2012 red, and the uh, assemblage on that is there's some uh, Cap some Cap Franc, some Merlot that makes up the majority of the wine. There's some Petit Verdot, and just a splash of Malbec and a splash of Tanat. Well, he. Uh, he, he also bottles those separately. I, I've tried the Tanat, which is which is fantastic, on its own. He uh, it does a Sangiovese on its own. Uh, JL, I have to tell you, I love your Gamay. It's not Gamay, but I love your Gamay. <laughs> it's. Uh, I don't think Gamay should be hovering around 15%, but it's pretty damn good Gamay. You know, uh, I used to make a light Gamay when people move from white to red. Uh, I used to make around 10,000 cases of Gamay super light. Yeah. And uh, after doing that for a few years, when people were tired of Gabi and moving to Gabi, I thought, well, maybe we should revive the Gabi category, but then in a more serious way, you know, like we're making, it's not about the alcohol, it's about the quality of the aromatics. So we really low yield, shrivel the grapes, and then we can make Gabi that. And at the end of the day, the testimony is our customers buy, not buy, it's $29 of a Gabi, it's not all for free, but it sells like no tomorrow. So until, my consumer is happy. I'm not going to stop. No, fair enough. I, I, uh, I love. I hate. I hate to say it. I love the stuff, despite the high alcohol. How about that? Yeah, I, I appreciate that. The, the, the way I was describing it to people when I tasted it last year was it was like uh, California and Beaujolais had a bastard child. Right. And yeah. It was. It was great like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's true. We still have Gamay. You know, it's a it's a lighter of our red wine. Yep. It's a secure of our red wine. Yeah. Despite all of what people think, uh, and. Uh, but it has more complexity than the average Gamay, I would say. And, uh, and we're not trying to imitate no one. We're not trying to make a Beaujolais village. We're trying to make the best Gamay we can think of in Niagara. That's all we are doing. So now that we've talked a little bit about, I guess, the winemaking now and a few things that we've tasted, uh, I think, Michael, you had a question that you wanted to kind of start with. Yeah, I have we a very... Because we, we want to talk a little bit about what JL has done, where he's worked in the past, where he's working now, and what he sees as the future of wine in Ontario. But I have a very important question, and I think it is the most important question we'll ask him tonight. And yeah. it's it's probably on the minds of everybody who has met JL, who has dined with JL, who has seen JL, and had a chance to try his fabulous wines over the years. And JL, are you, are you listening? Because this is, this is gonna be a very important question. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> Are you ready? I'm ready. What's with the beard? Oh, it's my wife. <laughs> <laughs> I had a beard since 1981, and when I married my wife, uh, I married me uh, partly for that trade, I guess. And when I, I was mentioning, even mentioning that I might shave years ago, she said that's a, 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 a divorce case. So <laughs> I kind of abandoned the idea because we are pretty well together, and I see no point of giving, giving that away. And you know what? Having to shave every morning, I think that's kind of a doom idea. I do that. There's, there's nothing wrong with having this beer. Very nice. All right, I'm glad we finally cleared that up. I've always wondered myself. <laughs> so I know you guys are drinking some Stratus wines this evening. Yes. Yeah. And uh, JL, here, here's what I'm drinking tonight. I've decided to open up a uh, Trius 2002 Merlot. Do you have any uh, recollection, oh. one of the vintage and two of that wine? Yes. Well, the, the 2002 was a very nice vintage. It, it was super concentrated. Uh, and... Uh, Melo, definitely. And Melo in that case is always uh, challenging because it can get overcooked in a warm year. But I remember making some Melo myself in 2001 and two, and they were very nice because they were not super warm years. They were good, good years, very good years, but not super warm years. 2001 was a bit warm, but 2002 was very reasonable. And that's when Melo can make really interesting things. If it's too warm, it kind of cooked the aromatic. So, Michael, how's it tasting? Well, when I first opened it, it was uh, very cedary, very oaky, uh, and very spicy. But you know what? Uh, it's been open for about uh, about half an hour, 45 minutes now, and uh, it's starting to mellow out. There's actually some fruit that's starting to materialize. I'm pretty impressed with this wine. Yeah, exactly. That's very often the case, you know, because we have the wine that stayed nine months in barrels, right, so typically. And... Uh, they kind of close down, what you have left is the skeleton of the wine, which is this oak character. So over over time, when you open the bottle, the fruit comes out. So you have to be patient when you open an old bottle of wine. That's the answer. Oh, yeah. It's it's actually, I'm sorry you two aren't here to enjoy this one. Uh, I think we're good. All right. Survive. <laughs> All right. Whatever. <laughs> Andre, I know that you and I, when we uh, when we learned that we were going to be talking to JL, you had one major question on your mind, and, and surprisingly, it wasn't about the beard. I I thought that would be top of the <laughs> mind for everybody, but uh, you actually had a question that you wanted to pose to him. You know what? I, I need to, to to ask the question the long way too, uh, because I, I find even with my writing, like I've been writing now for five years, I've, I've got a long ways to go before I reach the experience that, that Michael has had. I know you've been making for a long time um, but an attitude that I still find that exists in the market and in Ontario is that there's a lot of people who think that we can't make red wine in Ontario and I mean we got a lot of people who have hung their hat on uh, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay kind of things that ripened earlier and, and do well but you've really uh, pushed ahead and, and, and been a pioneer of uh, Bordeaux varietals, varietals that need a little bit of a longer growing season what were you thinking that you that you were here? And, and I mean, you've successfully done that. I mean, for Trias, like the red is one of their iconic wines. And now for Stratus, earlier today, we were listening to people talk about how Stratus is the flagship. The, the red is the flagship wine for Stratus. Right. No, it is definitely true. And there is one thing we completely overlook. We are in a cool climate here, but we are in a continental cool climate. 
That means between mid-June to the end of September, we have more heat units than Bordeaux has. More heat units than Bordeaux has. Okay, that's a very important part. And on top of that, we have this incredible, fantastic growing season in fall that we can write things where you try to do that in Bordeaux first rain, you lose the grain. Yeah, no, we don't lose the grain. It's, 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 it's still ripening without any fungus or issues with it. So these two things add together to make the fact that we can write things uh, very well. I'd say Cap Sauvignon is at six limit here. You know, you have three great years, three tough years and three average, where Cap Sauvignon, Cap Franc, for example, is way more consistent year after year. You can make Cap Franc very consistent year after year. But yeah, you have to pick it in November. So what? There's no, it's not the end of the world. It's just going to make great, better wine. And if I pick in October a Cap Franc, I have to fix it in the winery. If I pick it in November, it's already finished. You don't have to worry about it. And also, everybody think about Stradivarius have a great winery, but for me, what's important is what's in the vineyard and what's going on in the vineyard. And being patient for picking is what gives you great wines, not picking in and have a great fancy winery. It doesn't work that way. Um, so, I guess, what drew you to Ontario then to, to come and make wine here? I mean, that's not an easy uh, discovery and climate and sort of circumstance to fall upon. And I mean, at a time when you would have been working for Hillebrand, it would have been when there were very few wineries. Wow, well, I, I, I think I think Andre. Before we even go that, you should ask uh, JL where he was before he was at Hillebrand. Obviously, he was That's not right. here Obviously, in Ontario. I was in France. If you can hear me, a few sentences. I was in France at some point of my life, and I studied in Burgundy, and then betrayed Burgundy and went to study in Bordeaux University, and then worked in France for a while. You know, in areas such as Bordeaux, but as well uh, Muscadet, Gaillac. It was nice, actually, Gaillac, there is a revival. I was working there 30 years ago, and now, not because of me, but there is a revival of Gaillac, which is nice. But, uh, and then, find out that, you know, I always thought I wanted to go and work in a place where there is more opportunity for uh, research and development, to create new ideas, to, uh, not to bring the gospel, but to, to have more freedom myself as a, as a winemaker, to, to create new ideas, you know. In France, if I start to plant Pinot Noir in Bordeaux, I'm going to be the black sheep of the industry. Here, if I plant you know, Pinot Noir beside the rest of it, everybody gives the problem. So that's a problem. So that level of creativity, the, the amount of uh, people as well, our consumers, are very open to new ideas. They are very, you know, they love new ideas. Oh, a new variety. Great. You know, you try, you go in Alsace and you say, oh, I have, uh, I have just made, uh, you know, I don't know what, uh, a muscadet for you, you know. Uh, or uh, using uh, a variety such as, I don't know, Gamay, people will say, well, that's not an Alsatian variety, you can't do that. And the reality, the reality, France is moving so fast. I'm back from Champagne. I can tell you, 30 years ago, Champagne went one thing, it's totally different now. But they won't mention it to you. You know, they, they, the malolactic treatment, the way they use uh, disgorging, the way they disgorge, the way they use all this. They have so many things that have been changing in the last 30 years, but nobody talks about it here. We make new things, we talk about it, and our consumers uh, appreciate it or not, but at least they try. And that's pretty enjoyable, working in such an ambience. It's, it's interesting to hear that. I mean, uh, especially given the way that the market works, especially people in, in my age, age bracket are right. buying wine. We're looking for the new thing. You think that someone working in marketing at some of these wineries in France clue into the fact that millennials and, and younger wine buyers really 
want to hear about innovation and new things. I think large company get into it, but large company are not into specializing in superbring the mind. Okay. So it's very difficult to find superbring mind producers and that are really getting into off the road. You know? And it is uh, sometimes happening, like natural wine or in Champagne, they have 5,000 people making Champagne. Mm-hmm. You know, are talking, producing different names. Champagne. So they have to pick themselves different than the next guy. But even with that, they are not that creative, I think. They are changing, everybody is changing their way of doing things. But I think there is way more creativity here in Canada or in the new world in general than there is in France. And that's because, uh, well, consumers are not very receptive to new things. You know, they are very traditionalist. Interesting. So that, that, that makes it very different to work uh, in the place of France or here. So, so JL, who, did you come here on your own? Or did somebody approach you and say, hey, we've got a winery in uh, Niagara, uh, and then you probably had to go where? And they said, Ontario, Canada. Um, and and we would like you to come work for them. Well, I was looking at the time in Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. I had an offer in Canada, and I thought I was going to New Zealand, which I didn't go, but anyway, I refused that offer. So a friend of mine went, came here and stayed here for, for years, in fact. And then when I was traveling around the world, because I spent a bit of time doing that in my life, I would always stop somewhere to do a harvest. So on my way back from Latin America, I called my friend and he said, yeah, come for the harvest. So I stayed here in EDA for the harvest with him. And then uh, I liked it, and then I ran out of money, so I thought I had to work for serious again. So I came back from Africa, and, and he invited me to work with him. And a year later himself decided that the chief was no good here, so he's Going to leave anyway, so that's why that's how I stayed here at Hildebrand. Uh, but it was really a country I always wanted to work because it's not only about winemaking and that, it's as well about you know, the decision the countries make, how the countries work. France is a very different kind of it, yeah. it wants to be a superpower. People have different ideas about how uh, open to the world they are. And with me coming here was a, as well a kind of a, almost a political statement. Have we ever gotten political? I, mean, I guess we did get a little political on the podcast. Yeah, we've we've done it a little bit. So, so did you meet your wife here in Canada? I've just got to ask that question. No, no, I met my wife uh, in in France years before coming, and uh, we both decided she was a Parisian. At some point, it was a bit difficult to get her here, but uh, you know, we love each other. We decided we want to make a common life here, and uh, we came here in the end of 1989 together. And our two kids were born here. So she didn't go Canada. Why Canada? Why Canada? Yeah. Well, no. Why? When she didn't. She didn't say. When you said to her. No, no. But I mean, did, did, did your wife put up any resistance coming here? No. If it had been in the U.S., she would have put some resistance. For example, or if it had been in South Africa, she would have been resistant. So, you know, we were young people. We were concerned about what we wanted to do and when we wanted to live. And Canada was certainly a place of choice. So. You don't want to get political or whatever, but you know that's counts. And when you build a new life for the for the rest of your life, you want to think about where you want to live, and uh, you don't want to choose a place like Argentina was back then. Sure, there was some work in Argentina, but you know, it was big for us. Anyway, it was not an option. But I don't. So you, you talked about how uh, one of the reasons that you were looking at places to work was you wanted the freedom to be a little bit more creative with your winemaking. Yes. But uh, I almost find it a little ironic that you come to Canada, you go to, to uh, Hillebrand, and you proceed to make a Bordeaux-style wine with Bordeaux varietals. True. 
that was revolutionary though, okay. because everybody at the time was moving out of Burgundy and Champagne and whatever other name in their, in their bottle into Valuable work. So everybody was starting to write, you know, talking the 80s, Chardonnay, you know, and Riesling on their bottle. Everybody got excited. I think they didn't know what I meant by bottle. Then a crazy guy shows up. I was not the only one making the decision, but a bunch of us shows up and say, oh, you know what? We're going to go it red. Uh, and Trius, with a nice name, Trius, red. And that puzzled people a little bit, but that worked. And I have to say, a lot of marketing research has been done on the name. If you ask people who are buying $10, $15 bottle of wine, they are puzzled. They are not used to that. But people who are connoisseurs who understand wine a bit more, they are very open to assemblage wine like this. So uh, it's maybe not for everyone in terms of understanding what's on the label, but it, it became a bit of a cult wine uh, because of the quality of the wine, maybe. You know? yeah. It's not about what's written on the label always. But it took a few years to take off. But I mean, it's the key thing about about wine and marketing is you can have a, a fancy label, a fancy bottle, a fancy name, yeah. but the most important thing is always going to be that the wine yeah. has to taste good. Before we come back. We so the name, to... the name Trius. Yes. Did you come up with that, or did some no. marketing person come up with that at at No, no it was uh, there was some marketing people back then who were working on things, and uh, they came with the name Trius. So at the time we had three Chardonnays. You know, from three different vineyards, so that was totally vineyard oriented. And then three use red, and then we had a riesling called three use. Won't ask me why. There was maybe three different stories. And then eventually, uh, you know, we used to make a sparkling wine with a company from Germany, and then that that company took their name back called Muni. So we had to find another name, and everybody say, well, we complete the the line of wine and call that three use as well. So anyway, it's it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a growing business. But it started with the red on the Chardonnay, and then grew into Riesling, and then sparkling wine, and then what what you know now. And and did Trius have a meaning? Well, three varieties. That's a, oh, that's, that's all it is. Okay, so it is stuck with. So it's a, with doesn't mean three or four or one. It's perfect because at least I can use twelve varieties if that's the case, if that works. So uh, Trius was very nice of a starting board to make something new and interesting and new. Here in North America, but it was a very old idea in Europe. And, but I always felt I was living a bit of an accounting with that idea of three uh, varieties and being able to use uh, other varieties here at Stratus, like the Stratus Red, is really uh, an important trait and I think improves the quality of wines in general. So Stratus would have started in about, so first vintage was 2006? Well, really, we had the vineyard was purchased in 2000. So we have been making wine since 2000, at the beginning not our own winery, but the assemblage, you know, the assemblage were done, really, uh, I always was involved in the assemblage of every wine that was made uh, for Australia. So we have a 2001, uh, 2001 white, a 2001 and two red, they're still there, we can still enjoy them, and they are enjoyable, to mention that, because we have a bit of a trait to make wine that can age well. Again, another counter-marketing thing. Yeah, who cares? Who cares? Yeah, but it, it's still keeping that Euro spirit of making, you know, European wine concept that can age. You can enjoy them young, like we do now with the 2012, of course, that's a young wine. But you can age that in over 10 years if you want to. And I think it's still important. Wine takes time to make, to grow, to make, and to age. 
So what what happened though, where you made the the decision to leave Trius? Was it the Stratus yeah, sought you out and approached you? Or? Of that, yes. And I was interested in a project that was solely focused on Super Premium. You know, where you know, Uber is a very large business, and Super Premium was only part of that business. And of course, we had to. Uh, you, know, you have to fit in the mold somewhere. So all the people are making money in totally different way. I used to have a director that keeps saying, I don't understand the concept of barrel aging, you know. Throw the barrel in the tank so you use both sides, you know. That's easy. <laughs> Holy so, you know, it's a kind of thing you had to deal with all the time to keep making super premium wine. There was a real commitment from the president, John Peller, to keep making super premium wine. But the, the, co- you know, the corporation, had always played all the things in general, so it was always a bit difficult. When you have a system, you're really focusing on that has been purchased, built, and everything across the purple and white. But none of that, you know, I enjoyed my time at uh, uh, and before that with Hindenburg, uh, it's just, uh, it was uh, not a part of a business. So, you know, I didn't have control of the vineyard, for example. But here, I have control of the vineyard, which is very important because that's where the wine is made. So uh, it's, uh, it's important to be able to move 12 years ago to that business, which is still now focusing on Super Premium. And working with David Fairberg at his patients, you know, on the developing a business, which is an expensive business to start mm-hmm. and develop in Super Premium. People think, oh, you know, you are selling that bottle of wine at $40, you must be a rich bunch of people. Doesn't work that way. You have low yield, you know. You you have low yield. A lot of people working in your vineyard, you know. You takes three or four years to make the wine. You have to buy the barrels. At the end of the day, you know, you think, oh, maybe I should make ten dollars a bottle of wine. But that's not the spirit. Well, and I don't know if anyone. I'm 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 guessing many of the people listening to this podcast have been to the winery. But for the people who haven't been to the winery. The facility itself, trust me, with the forty or forty-five dollars you're paying for a bottle of Stratus Red or White, you're helping to pay for one of the nicest buildings in, in Niagara right now. Right. It can't be cheap to build a building like that. But you're mainly paying for uh, the low yield, the pick by hand, the sorting by hand, the aging for years. Yep. All these things. That's it's a it's a wine that costs money. Forget the winery. The wine itself costs money to me. Way more than. And and I and I think that JL I think that shows in the bottle. It really does. Every time I go Thank to you. a Stratus tasting, where where you do some sort of vertical or or uh, you you do your new releases, uh, it, it you, you you can tell that 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 wine is just you know soup as you called it super premium. It's not you know something that's going to appear at the LCBO for fourteen dollars. It's going to cost, but it, it costs for a reason, and, and I think you've really put that kind of quality in the bottle. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. I really appreciate that because it's a little work. But you might always understand what the hell is that, that, that price of every wine. If we start to say that wine half price, we go back to Now, now I'm, I'm not going to ask you a question that's going to be, um, that's going to be really hard to answer, especially um, given how the wine come out at, at Stratus. So. I recently got an opportunity to taste the uh, 13 Stratus White, and I can still vividly remember what the 12 tasted like. But just the the way the wines taste every year is is completely completely different, and your assemblage that you put together is completely different. Yes. How do you decide what you're going to make a wine a wine taste like? Well, I don't know. 
first of all, because they're all vintage wine, we cannot be 100% consistent. Third, by making an assemblage wine, we try to keep some kind of consistency. It's not so much all variety like Sauvignon Blanc or Chardonnay or Sauvignon. They have a lot of aromatics in common. If you try to put them in a scan, they have a lot of aromatics in common. We find tropical fruit in the three of these varieties. We find a bit of caffeine. So it's not like varieties are unique, unique by themselves. So by having this assemblage of all these varieties and aromatics, one corn and aromatics is what drivers is done by tasting. It's not done by, oh gee, I think that's going to work with that and that's always, that's one way to do it. By tasting, you find what fits together. You have to find the synergies by tasting them. And then eventually, after hundreds of tasting, you find what is the best wine of the year every year. And yes, it's not the same variable, but we believe it's always high quality. And if it's not, they're not making it. You know, like 2011, you won't see much of that. It's rather spread around because we didn't think it was right enough. But it's, it's about consistency, how we make it. So it's counterintuitive, especially for North American people, that by using different percentage of varieties, we are going to make a wine consistent. That is exactly what we do. Let's say a year is not great for Cap Sauvignon, and the next year is great for Cap Sauvignon. Well, if you make Cap Sauvignon, you are going to have a bit different Cap Sauvignon taste. It's not consistent. Where for us, we would say, okay, this is not a great year for Cap Sauvignon. Let's put more Cap Franc, let's put a bit of Tanac or Syrah, whatever that is. And it's not a conscious decision. It's by putting them, trying them, taste them. I always taste blind. I never know what I'm tasting when I do this. At the end, I'm going to do what it was, and my nose, and then build on that for the next tasting and say, you know, that seems to work together. Let's try to put that. Or let's try to remove that and see how that works. So it takes three months and hundreds of tasting. Jay, I'll, I've got a, I've got a question that kind of goes back to what you said about your education. You said you started your education in in Burgundy. Am I correct on that? Yes, that's oh, right. Okay, so talking to um, Craig McDonald uh, not too long ago, he said that Craig McDonald is the um, the current winemaker at, at Yes. So uh, talking to him, he said that Trius over the years has never been known, or Hillebrand at the time, but Trius has never been known for Pinot Noir. And now that I think about it, I don't think I've ever seen Stratus with a Pinot Noir. So are you totally dissing Burgundy by saying, I'm not making Pinot Noir, or I'm not hanging my hat on this grape, or do you not like working with Pinot Noir? What's the deal with Pinot Noir, I guess? The, the, the location of the wine. Okay, first of all, Pinot Noir is a very sensitive variety. You ask for your yield on that. So people who wants to make it right usually grow it themselves. So I was in a position back then where to get Pinot Noir Super Premium was very difficult. A lot of our growers had Pinot Noir planted in the 70s, 80s that were champagne clothes. So that doesn't help to make great wines. Now here at Stratus, what's more important is to understand the location of the winery. This is definitely a location for warm climate, grapes if you want. You know, we can grow Tamponio and Sangiovese fantastically. But it's not good for Pinot Noir, it's not good for everything, it's not that great for Riesling. So, so if the winery Stratus was uh, in Jordan, on the Escarpment, on top of the Escarpment, more likely it would grow Pinot Noir and Cap Franc. So it's really depending on where you are and what your vineyard is capable of doing. Uh, I've, had, I've had the pleasure of uh, dining with Paul Hobbs, who is the, um, the consultant, so I'm, I'm jumping way ahead now. How is it like working with Mr. Hobbs? It's a pleasure. You know, uh, he's uh, here tomorrow, he's going to work with me at the winery, and we are going to 
uh, have a bunch of 40 or 60 glasses of wine in front of us. We're going, and then we're going to take that and have all kind of conversation about how wine is being made and what can be done, what can be tried. So it's, it's not a one-way road uh, conversation. It's always a conversation that I have with Paul. He's uh, very helpful. He did bring some very helpful hints in the vineyard and the winery. But at the end of the day, uh, it's, it's more an infusion that we work, we work like, you know. In fact, I do love to go to see his own vineyard in, uh, in the Riesling vineyard that he has, you know, in the Pugelos now. So I heard I heard about that. So you've been you've been there? The vineyard on the slope is great. And like Seneca Lake, it's really worth working there. And I remember, you know, Paul is not much in Riesling, so we had a lot of conversation in Riesling, how we make Riesling and all that. So it's kind of a consultancy, but it's an agreeable one, it's been going on since 2009, and I always enjoy when Paul comes because I'm going to uh, taste wine with him, have good comments, pick new ideas, and then make things evolve. You know, there's nothing more than to be stuck in your own uh, wine-making life and never change. You know, always change. My, you know, I've been making wine for 45 years, and if I had no chance in 45 years, I'd be done a long time ago. I would be not interested. So by evolving, learning from others, and calling one consultancy, we have a consultant in the vineyard as well. We have maybe three or four consultants that try to do what we work with. Paul is maybe a, 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 a very important figure, but it has always been, Stratus has always been surrounded by consultants. It's a way of life, and that's how we get better. I know that you uh, talk a little bit about uh, Stratus being perfect for the varietals that you have planted, and you're obviously pushing the envelope with having some varietals that not many people or no one else right. has planted. The perspective of the agri-agriculture thing, we keep, we keep planting varieties forever, yep. but they are, in fact, we are selectioning things, so there are many varieties that are disappearing, uh, that are used to make Kerner and Weiger, and that's pretty much gone. And there are now new varieties we are trying, such as Sangiovese or Tempranillo or Tanat, that we see the value of. No, we try. There's only one variety we try that never worked. Move in. Sorry, that doesn't work in general. You say everything works, but if you don't even try, you never know. Like nobody ever planted Petiviado here because with the crazy name or the reputation it had. But we were the first one planting it, and we have been planted two and a half acres. And we believe it makes better wine than in Bordeaux. I wouldn't say that it won't tap so, but I would. Petiviado, Bordeaux is maybe not the right place for Petiviado, in fact. I would even make yeah. an argument for Cap Franc being. That's yeah. good, possibly better than Bordeaux That's right. and some vintages. Very true. So we have way more heat unit than the poverty than Bordeaux, you know, so we can do things that people do not conceptualize. We have these yeah, direct food of needs. You know, we have a lot of heat units. So people are you know, we have to get out of our complex. You know, Canadian are like that, we have that complex of oh no, we can't do that, or we will. No, no, we can do many great things and red wine selling webinar. We can make fantastic red wines here. And there is a case, you know, when we talk about making great Riesling, it's true. But people say, oh, you need cool years for Riesling. Well, you know what? Cool years in Yangara means uh, rainy year, and that's not make the best Riesling. If you think about Alsace, it's pretty warm out there, you know? It's a lot of heat units there. And in, in fact, our best Riesling is when we have warm years. But you have to know when to pick them. If you pick them too late, you burn the flavors and you're done. So it's about about when you pick them, what's more important maybe than... Uh, what variety you grow. But there are some limits to what we can do here. But I don't want to put a cap on anything until you try it. It's like, you try it, don't close the door before you open it, you know, like kind of idea. That's such a, that's such a great 
an ins inspiring sort of quote to say that like, you try try everything before closing the door. I, I know. Uh, do you have any projects that you're planning on working on? I, I know that a lot of winemakers will keep things under wraps, and there are going to be some people who are going to listen to this, so you don't have to tip any secrets. But do you have any any projects or varietals that you would love to work on, or something that you really think could be the next big thing in Ontario? Uh, Alvinia is now fully planted, okay. you know, and so there, there's not much I can do. But I'd love to try other things like Chenin Blanc is one variety that I'd love to try. Two people tried on Gallant DC because it doesn't go well through winter, but you know, I heard that about uh, Semillon, and I have Semillon for 12 years, no problem. Uh, okay, but you're, you're one of the only ones that yeah. have Semillon. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of how you treat, you know, you have to learn how to treat each variety and what to do with it. So I believe Chenin would be a great variety for here. Uh, I'm sure there's other red variety that would do well from here, especially from the northern part of Italy. There are these great varieties in the other part of Italy that growing in the mountain. I think that some of them would do super well. So there is room to grow. People are, you know, are trying Italian varieties, and that's great. You know, you're a bit sick with all these French varieties non-stop. Let's try to get out of there, and that's why I planted Tempranillo. Everybody was complaining about Tempranillo being too low acidity. You know, I say, well, maybe in Niagara we have hard white. But too bad. We have low acidity too with Tempranillo. We have the same problem with planet with Tempranillo, but it tastes like Tempranillo. It's got some bonus. So you've gone from Burgundy to Bordeaux, right? To Niagara to make wines with Bordeaux varietals. I don't even want to call them Bordeaux style wines because I think at this point they are they are JL wines. They are Niagara wines. But he but he's now also throwing in Italian and Spanish varieties. Just yeah, I think they might take just to screw passport. with people. I think. Certainly, <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, all that. When they do new things like that, you know, in France you would be crucified. Here you are just people are waiting for the results. You know, so it takes seven years to produce. You know, by the time you plan and you release the wine, it's a seven-year project, big sparkling wine. So people are waiting and see what we are going to do with it. And uh, when you end up, when we end up having a great. Uh, Results with these varieties, well, people say, okay, maybe we've tried ourselves. You know, like there are quite a bit of people planting Petit nowadays, and some kind of have been planted. So it's like it's a pleasure to plant your things. But I don't say we should plant anything and whatever. And because we are strutters, we are in the assemblage business, we like to have different personality in our vineyard to be able to come and to make a more complex wine. So that's the objective and the drive behind planting new varieties for us. For other people, it can be because they are Italian background and they want to do that. But don't throw the stone at anyone, you know. Niagara, 30 years ago, were thrown at stones, saying, well, you can't grow vinifera grapes here. You can't do that. But you can't do that. Even the scientific community would not do that. There's a bunch of courageous people who did it and are successful. So I always say, you know, there are people who are trying to grow grapes in you know, Manitoulin Island and, and Barry area and, and the people where else in Ontario. It's interesting to hear you say that, JL, because I remember you famously saying that Syrah did not belong in Niagara, and now I know that you're a convert to, to Syrah. Right. Yes, I used to be with the wolf saying, oh, you can go to Syrah in Niagara, but that's 30 years ago, 20. And now I am a great fan of Sierra Niagara, except it's one of the most challenging varieties to work with 
That's why we have been trying different clones uh, to work with to be able to get the right steroid clone. And I think there are steroid clones that are better resistant than the one we, have, we originally have coming. In fact, the clone we originally permitted to have in Yangon are now outlawed in track. You know a lot of story that there is something better to do about steroid Yangon. Okay, so, I mean, we talked a little bit about uh, what yes. we can plant, and uh, it's, it's very inspirational to, to hear you talk about how people should just be pushing and don't, and don't let people say no, but uh, I know when we talked to Donald Zeraldo, he was kind of calling out a lot of the young people who are getting into the industry and telling them that they need to step up. Uh, do you have a message for some of the younger or newer people to the industry that you could pass on to them? Still open mind. Be creative. Uh, do not hesitate to be creative, uh, and you see people are going to welcome your new ideas. Sometimes you can go wrong. You can go wrong. It's okay. Start something else. You always learn from being wrong. So, bottom line, we have to. We have. Sorry, I'm tasting some 2012 Fred's Rex. I can't speak. I can't taste at the same time. <laughs> but overall. Well, we're moving to the 9 now. Oh. 2009, which is nice to have. I've, I've moved so past overall, that. I'm in the O2. Okay. Uh, so overall, uh, it is it is important that people realize they are in a country where there is potential for great creativity. There's many more things to be discovered in terms of terroir, in terms of where to find to plant the right variety for the right thing. And uh, people, our consumers are very open to new ideas here. Contrary to what it would be in Europe, more difficult, let's say. So take advantage of that and enjoy the time. JL, I have, I have a question, and if, if you don't want to answer it, just remain silent and we'll fill it somehow. Um, you said, you know, be creative, uh, you know, try different things. And uh, I hear a lot of winemakers say that the VQA stops them from being creative because of their word typicity. Uh, does that stop you from being creative in any way, shape, or form? Or do you have any thoughts on how the VQA stops you from being cre as creative as you want to be? No, uh, you know, I believe VQA is evolving, and it does evolve, you know. When one day I decided to borrow some wine with leaves, thick leaves in the bottom of the bottle, but that was not in the rule, that was nowhere to be seen. And Victory said, yeah, we're going to make a new rule for to accommodate that time of wine because it tastes good. There's nothing wrong with that. We are currently at Victory creating rules for orange wine, amber wine. I tell you, that's going to be the first or the second legislation in the world that it But many people around the world talk about it, but not many legislation existed about it. Uh, and, and that's to me, if people ask Victory to create new categories, new ways, it's not. That's what people are trying to do, and that can be fine and taste it. It will, it will go through. But you, you, yeah, you, you have some time to change the regulation to adapt to a new market, a new way of making wine. So there are always, you know, in France it's the same thing. There are people who are dead against the appellation system because they don't let them do whatever they want, this and that. So it's always like, you know, there's always people who are rebellious against any legislation in the authority. But I think Victory has been demonstrated over the year that we do evolve. There is not one year where the legislation does not evolve. There's at least five or ten new things that are allowed every year. So it's not stuck in time. You know? So you don't feel it, it, it hinders creativity uh, at all? I don't think so. 
it, it's kind of a double edge. You know, if you want to be to have consumers that are confident when they buy VQA, it's not anything on whatsoever. You have to put some rules. At the same time, the rules have to evolve. If there is a new category of wine being created, and, and that's what I've been promoting all along, or new territories, or more places in one county. Original, at the beginning, people, what are the crazy people doing there? That was 20 years ago. I always say, well, if they have an appellation, let's be an appellation. Otherwise, they make one themselves anyway. You know, so may as well be inclusive instead of exclusive. So it's not always understood by some. I have to say that some producers, when they have their wine rejected, and there's always an explanation why the wine is rejected, for banana against the legislation on the I have to say it's not necessarily fair because they rarely tell you when VQ has written, or well, not VQ people, but the panel has written against this wine. Usually it's, uh, it's oxidized or it's this and that. And sure, people say, yeah, oxidized wine is good for you. Okay, that's good for when you call it sherry or you call it, uh, you call it port, that's supposed to be like. So it, it's kind of, it has its limits to make wine that all are going to open this wine, says Riesling, and it tastes something totally on the wall. So you create something that says Riesling uh, on the wine, or Riesling, whatever else, no sulfur, whatever you want. But you have at least to let the consumer know what they are going to get before they get it. That's some food for thought, eh? And you have food in front of you. I have one, uh, I have one question, one more question, and I think I, I'm, I'm done. And uh, JL, what is it? We're recording this obviously in 2016. It's late August, and uh, we have had probably one of the, if not the driest summer in Niagara that we have ever seen. How do you think that's going to affect the grapes, and what kind of wines do we expect from the 2016 vintage? Very positive for us. It's very bad for any agricultural field that's going on. Guys, but for vineyard, it's good news. Sure, if you are into the 10 ton an acre business, that might be suffering a bit going down to six ton. But if you are in the super premium wine, you are going to be forced to make super premium wine. In fact, even people who are not into that business, this year is going to be a great year for everything. It's not 2012 or 10, it's not early year, it's not an early year, but it's a year that has a lot of heat units and low water, and that's always good to make wine. So I'm very confident in the quality we are going to get this year. It's about time. Uh, since 2012, we were struggling a little bit. So I think there is something great coming out of it. And I don't think, you know, I know some places, Vignard have been struggling, you know, in places where you're on the slope, you have rocks very close to your roots. You might, some people have been struggling and, and might have needed irrigation. But funnily enough, people were irrigating around Yagera People who had uh, the most water, and people there on the slope, they don't have irrigation to choose from. So that was a bit of a sad story. But for us, that's right, zero irrigation. You go there, the vineyard is green as green can be. No worry, no, 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 no. It's a great year. Jail, I really appreciate you giving us the time and talking a little bit about your history and the Pleasure. way things are, the way things were. And uh, I mean, it's really interesting. We just tasted the Stratus 2009, and. Uh, it's a very good, the fruit's very ripe in it, but it's definitely got a little bit more meatiness to it, where the 12 is really fruit-driven, but none of these wines, especially not the 12, but the 2009, I don't even feel like it's showing any secondary flavors yet. This is still a really young wine from 
a vintage I think every winemaker in Niagara politely referred to as challenging. So thank you for sharing the wine. We finished picking this catalog in December. I never did that since. <laughs> but it, it, it works. It works, you know, because at the end of the day, the year was the most challenging red year since 1990. I can think of it. And by persisting, by having no yield and by waiting a long time, we made the wine, we made a Stratus wine. Normally you would think a year like that, you don't think I made Stratus wine. Actually, I know I've already wrapped up, but let me sneak one more question in because you've been around since 1989. What do you think is the best vintage that Niagara's seen in up, up to date? Well, it's difficult to, uh, to answer one vintage because they have been in the last you know, 20, 28 years, a lot of great vintages, but 91 is one that came to mind because it's a fantastic year. Uh, we were not necessarily prepared for such a fantastic year, but since then we had, you know, we had 95, 98, 2001. Uh, we had uh, 2007, 2010, and 12, and 2016, I believe. So they are a bunch of great years. There is two or three of these that I asked him to pick his favorite child, and he gave us seven. <laughs> and he seems to have come up with a few. Well, JL, we, we really appreciate your time. I know uh, uh, that um, you're going to continue to make great wine here in Niagara. And uh, we look forward to the 2016s, which should come out in like four or five years. Is that correct? Uh, just be patient. Maybe we have some coming. The rosé will come in six months. Okay. And then the rest, yes, you're right. Three years, we'll get that. <laughs> I look forward to them. All right. Thank you. Thanks. So as you can tell, part of that interview was a little bit hard to hear, and that's because we were in a, a noisy wine bar archive at 909 Dundas Street West in Toronto. I know that's a shameless plug, but I am convinced it is the best wine bar in the city. And having been there, I can say it's a, it's a very small look. I don't know where the heck you recorded that, yeah. but a very good wine bar. And um, yeah, it was just, uh, he's a very soft-spoken man, but he's definitely very, very passionate. You know what? I can just say that there's a lot of people, and there's a lot of reasons to be fairly cynical about how wine is made in Ontario, but there is not an ounce of cynicism in that man, and I think that's something that needs to be applauded if we're going to have people who are kind of carrying the flag, especially working at a winery like Stratus, and I'm just looking forward to whatever the heck he's up to next. I, I always look forward to, to his wines, and especially his gamay. So, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. We are two guys talking about wine. No, we're just... We two, are two guys... We're just two guys talking wine. Oh, no. Come on, let me do a pickup so we can oh. edit that out. We are two guys talking wine. Uh, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and uh, until next time. I'm Michael Pincus, the grape guy from michaelpincuswinereview.com. Andre Prue from andrewinereview.ca. Good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.